Hello, and thank you for joining us at St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. This next interview you're going to hear with Reverend Jennifer King Doherty is a very deeply personal and meaningful interview for me. I hope you will also get as much out of it as I did. If you'd like to listen to part two of this interview, you can find it on the St. Mark's website or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations, a podcast featuring members of the St. Mark's Cathedral community in Seattle, Washington. These interviews feature lives of faith and adventure, service and connection. Here's our host, Michael Pereira. I've been waiting to interview Reverend Jennifer King Doughty for a long, long time, but for some reason, our schedules just never lined up. And then of course the cathedral closed, but she was so flexible with saying, let's do this over zoom. And then we finally had the zoom interview set up. And then Barack Obama gave a very important speech when we had actually set our time aside. So I have, I have the honor of being bumped by president Barack Obama (laughs) every day, but um, that does lead us to the conversation that I've been waiting to have. Um, with Reverend Jennifer King Doherty. I have so many things to talk about, so many personal experiences, but then also where St. Mark's finds itself at a unique moment, certainly in our history here in Seattle, but then absolutely our history as a church and the position of the church in the country. And not to put too much pressure on Jennifer, but we'll just, <laughs> we'll, make it as a, we'll make it a normal start to this conversation. Jennifer, thank you so much for being a part of St. Mark's Cathedral Conversations. Thank you. So I know I, I way, way overhyped how this is going to go, and I don't want to um, put any undue pressure one way or the other. So let's just start all the way as far back as you want to take it. How did you begin in a church? How, how, what was your first church experience, your first church life like? Well, I was raised Roman Catholic and born in Southern California. And so my first experience of church was in a Ventura, California, small Roman Catholic church. It was my grandparents, my grandfather and grandmother, who I remember as being most prominent in um, a sense of religious leadership at the time. And my grandmother died when I was um, pretty young, when I was 10. So it was really my grandfather, Joe Walsh who uh, was the first person who took me seriously when it came to spiritual and religious matters. Um, I think in another life, he would have been a priest himself, Um, but he loved his family and wanted to have work in the world. But he read a lot of theologians, and I can remember when I was as young as seven years old, him sending me like an adult book from from a Dutch theologian. And then asking me, you know, what I thought about it. And then later on, um, as I got older and we would have conversations about God and um, about the Holy Spirit and how the um, the Holy worked in the world, he sent me a reel-to-reel tape recorder and said, um, Jennifer, I want you to um, talk to me about God and send me the tapes. Well, it took me a long time to 
figure out how to use the real, the real tape recorder. But um, my memory of that is it was someone who acknowledged um, my capacity to engage with the great mysteries of the holy. And so that's, I think, one of my early formative memories. The other that is um, really hard to even verbalize is in the midst of all of that, um, I had, I was having dreams. Um, I had dreams all my childhood about a very particular situation in which I was um, in a, I was in the center of a circle and there were people surrounding me who could not touch me, who could, uh, but were somehow talking about me. And it wasn't one of those, you know, threatening um, playground, everyone's laughing at you things. And I came to realize when I later learned I was born seven weeks early and I spent those seven weeks in an incubator in the hospital. And I think a lot of that is, um, a lot of that dream was about that kind of pre-verbal memory of knowing that you are um, seen but not touched. But what's about God in that is my, in my dream and in my memory, I never felt alone. And whether the voices came and go, I always felt that there was um, someone with me. And so that's, you know, kind of my own mysterious memory of, of the holy from the very beginning of my life. I'm just taken aback by that connection. I mean, first, your grandfather investing so much time to send you the books to say, hey, record your thoughts. Let's go into that. But then even so far back in your life, that sense of being connected, yeah. that sense of being surrounded by that, that's, that's hugely impactful. It is. And I think it's why, for me, my faith feels very intuitive. Um, it's not it's not grounded in an intellectual systematic theology, but much more in a felt sense of God's presence and a conviction that the Holy is woven throughout everything. Mm -hmm. And yes, my grandfather was a prince. He was just a prince. <laughs> um, so those were the roots. And then, you know, in my... When I was growing up, I grew up in Houston, Texas, and so the influence, the religious influence there was not really the Roman Catholic Church, but much more of the Baptist, Methodist tradition, especially as lived out in non-denominational gatherings like Young Life and um, much more conservative, taking the Bible more literally um, approaches. And I engaged with that, but always felt a little bit like a fish out of water. And so when I went to college, I um, went to the, uh, the chaplain's office looking for someone to talk to. And I came across Sister Mary Schelling, who was a Roman Catholic sister, who was, I think at that time, probably in her 70s. And um, we never had appointments, but I would just show up at her door and she would make me a cup of tea. And um, she would help me process uh, what I had uh, learned from the Catholic church and from my experience in young life and all of that and the resistance I had to that literal interpretation of scripture. And um, she opened so many doors for me. And um, so fast forward, it wasn't until my thirties that I really started to feel a, a deep call, an articulable call to the priesthood. Um, I've talked before about, um, when I joined the Episcopal Church, I was in my 20s, my mid-20s. We were living in New York City, and we'd stopped going to the Catholic Church, even though that was where we were married, um, because it just didn't feel like home. Uh, 
but we found our way to the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. And uh, we started going there and it just blew my mind. The everything, the liturgy, the beauty, of course, of that, which is like St. Mark's on steroids in some ways. Um, <laughs> but also the diversity, the diversity of musicians. Wynton Marsalis would come and play. Paul Winter um, launched his Earth Mass there. Um, there were liturgical dancers for Pentecost. Um, and the preachers, it wasn't just the clergy on staff or visiting clergy, it was um, Jesse Jackson or Butos Brutos Gali um, from the UN and the Secretary General of the UN. And, and so we, I got this sense that in the Episcopal tradition, um, faith is about all parts of life. It's about all the different expressions of beauty and seeking and truth and that um, spiritual wisdom could come from anyone, not just ordained people. So um, that was super attractive. And then I heard a woman say the Eucharistic prayers and I was just hooked. So um, that's how I came to the Episcopal church. And then I had kids and worked and we lived all over um, the US and we lived in the Netherlands and you know, life was busy, right? But there was always a desire to grow deeper spiritually. And after I had children and we were living in California, I became very involved in our Episcopal church there as a Sunday school teacher and then as a um, Eucharistic minister, Eucharistic visitor. And I just found myself one day navigating to CDSP, the Church Divinity School of the Pacific. And they had online classes for lay people, kind of like education for ministry. And before I knew it, it just became part of my life that along with other things, I would have some organized study. And, um, and then when I turned 40, I had the realization that I couldn't wait any longer. And so started, you know, went through the discernment process and then started going to seminary. And of course it all took a very long time because of having three kids and a full-time job. But one of the things I learned from that experience is that if I just take it a step at a time and ask what's the next thing to do, um, that eventually it all adds up into um, being ordained and having my, um, I was a transitional deacon at, at uh, St. Clement in Mount Baker, but my priesthood has been spent at St. Mark's for the last six years. That's remarkable to me like as you said you had three kids a full-time job you had a pretty full life as it was and it's not that priesthood was um kind of a void in your life that you were looking to fill even having a family even having already a job this was something that you wanted to do yeah it was almost it got to be something that i just stopped questioning that, that the desire, whether it was, um, whether it played out and what I want, how I wanted to spend my time in um, my spiritual practices or learning more about theology or whether it was coming up in my dreams. Um, again, I had so many dreams that pointed to that desire that at some point I just said, you know, I'm just going to, I'm just going to take it a day at a time. I'm going to live into whatever, role um, might be needed in my church. I was at Emmanuel Episcopal Church on Mercer Island before. Um, that was, I think I was there for 10 years. 
And, um, and there were wonderful opportunities for lay leadership. And um, so I got a lot of practice and exposure. And the more I, um, the more I participated in lay ministry, the more the desire for ordained ministry, I think, grew as well. You said earlier that your love of the, the liturgical tradition was based on the intuitiveness of it, where it, it, wasn't that, it wasn't analytical, it wasn't where everything was figured out and we all fit neatly into these boxes, but we evolve into it and we grow deeper into it. And that sounds like so much of what you're describing. Yeah. How did St. Mark's come up? Well, um, as I was finishing seminary and, you know, I knew I would be placed somewhere, hopefully by the bishop, uh, but we hadn't really gotten to the place of having those conversations in any kind of depth. Uh, I was uh, participating in an um, event. I'm trying to remember specifically what event it was. It was essentially a, a um, recognition, I think, for the Bishop Society. And uh, Bishop Greg had asked us to host something small at our house. And Dean Thomason came um, representing St. Mark's and he had um, some leadership in that event as well. And so that was the first time that he and I had met and I had met Kathy. And we started, we just had a couple of brief conversations that evening. And uh, a couple weeks later, or maybe it was a month later, I forget, he called up and said, so would you, um, would you like to come and preach at St. Mark's sometime? Wow. <laughs> Just out of the blue. Yes. Yes. So he issued this extraordinary invitation and I came on, I think it was, it was president's weekend in February. Uh, what would that have been? Um, 2014. Okay. And, um, and I think it went well. And then he in, invited me to come and be a curate at St. Mark's. I'm sure you had been to the cathedral before then. I had. I had a couple of times, but not that often, to be honest. Uh, so I did not know a lot of people who were, who were there. What was your impression of the place? I mean, first in your smaller visits, but then as a preacher. Yeah. Well, I, like anyone, you know, you walk in and I was just um, taken away by the spaciousness and the simplicity at the same time. And there's a weightiness in the air that to me feels like the weight of decades of people's prayers. There was that weightiness in, in St. Mark's that felt really compelling and um, and very attractive. I mean, just wanting to be there. Uh, from the moment I, I started, um, the first time I preached, and then when I came back as a curate, people have always been very welcoming and very interested in seeing, Nancy and Christy and I have talked about this too, in accepting us as um, our own people, our own manifestations of ministry, and almost with a curiosity as to what that will be rather than a need to um, put uh, me in the role of another clergy person who's come before, which was a real gift as I 
settled into my sense of calling and practice and how I, how I showed up as a pastoral caregiver or as a preacher or as a presider, as a encourager of others, others ministries, all of those things certainly came out of my experience as a professional and as a mother and as a friend, but they're not the same, you know, it, it, it comes, it shows up differently. It sounds like that that is describing your curacy, continuing your own spiritual journey, but on the scale of cathedral, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of investment that people have put in for decades, for generations. Yeah. I was talking with Maria Caldwell earlier, and she was uh, describing the capital campaign to me and the, the renovation project. And it struck me, not for the first time, that there are, that so many people donated their time and their money and their efforts to the work of the cathedral, the, the physical structure, but then the community work, who are not with us anymore to see that. And like you said, you still feel that. You can hear their prayers. You can hear their presence there. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to do that. Mm-hmm. And you know, Michael, I think, not to skip completely ahead to the topic of COVID-19 and what we're experiencing now. But I feel like that strength of generation upon generation upon generation, parent to child, to friend, to niece, you know, that passing of the leadership and spiritual glue shows up even more to me in these days of COVID because I feel like we are as fully a community of faith today as we were on March 1st. I, I see it in the way people stay connected to each other, in the way they dream about the future, in the way that they take their own spiritual lives seriously and want their faith to speak to their work and the way they parent and the way they handle the anxiety of not knowing what comes next, that that um, I don't feel like we're on hiatus at all, but we're just living, we are church in a different way, but somehow that isn't, we didn't make it up out of whole cloth. This is what we have been practicing um, from the very beginning. We're just doing it in a different way. Broadly, what does congregational life mean? It's interesting. Um, When we first talked about uh, dividing up some areas of leadership responsibility, and I took on the role of canon for congregational life, we sat with it and talked about it. Steve and I spent a good bit of time discussing it. And the way we articulated it was um, that I would be responsible for noticing and strengthening and helping to make community connections, that the canon for congregational life would be, um, would make sure that we are all as a community and especially clergy caring, taking care of those who are in need or who are in transition. So not just people who are in ill health, the people who are in transition, happy or sad, um, or somewhere in between. And then the third was um, noticing 
and encouraging the spiritual gifts of others and helping to raise up leaders and plant new ministries. None of that is about the building. And that was the way we articulated it. I guess it was a couple years ago now when we, um, beginning of 19, I guess. So it's a year and a half ago. You don't have to be in the building or have to be able to come to church on Sunday to, to do any of that. So I think the canon for congregational life is about caring for individual parishioners and uh, at, a, at a micro level, making sure that's happening, but also zooming out and seeing all the ways that the church behaves as church for each other that doesn't have a clergy person in the hub and, um, and helping to acknowledge and feed and nurture and support how that happens. So whether that's the 20s and 30s group that gathers or the Tuesday Bible study or the visual arts ministry or the bail fund or um, Eucharistic visitors or the prayer chain, I think congregational life is about naming the micro communities that exist at St. Mark's. The um, parents with small children would be one. So um, Kelly Moody, um, as the director for children and family ministries, has primary responsibility for gathering those people. Um, but then she and I talk, and we talk as a whole clergy group about how does that group get connected to other parts of the cathedral community? And how do we become an intergenerational family that knows each other, that cares for each other, and that grows deeper spiritually? So I also um, have primary strategic responsibility for the 20s and 30s group, um, which is another micro community at St. Mark's. The Tuesday Bible study is one, and, um, and then there are new ministries that develop that maybe are micro communities or maybe they're people who gather from multiple places within the community and create something new. So whether that's the visual arts ministry or the racial reconciliation group, which then grew into um, founding the Northwest Community Bail Fund. Does that offer any more clarity? Oh, so much. Yeah. I've, I've worked with you on 20s and 30s material, but I'm, I have to be honest and say pretty oblivious to most of the other work that goes on in congregational life. To know how you help make that happen in the same way that you help make 20s and 30s happen and then the Tuesday Bible study and all those other groups. I mean, that's congregational life. So your docket is pretty full then. I mean, you know, let alone cathedral closure. Even before all this happened, there was a lot going on and there were always new things being talked about. And so yeah. you're looking at a pretty big community and saying, how can we all make sure that we're functioning as we should and moving the life of the con congregation forward? That's a lot. Just well, I would say that it's not, it's not a single person's responsibility, right? It's all the clergy and the dean establishes kind of the vision overall for how the congregation um, functions and how it's connected uh, in, in all of its various incarnations. Um, and all of the clergy are responsible for congregational life and care. And then the really cool part that I think we've seen 
um, even more in this time of pandemic are all of the ministry leaders and people who are gatherers of communities in their own right. Um, I had an email exchange yesterday with someone who talked about um, staying in touch with their pew, that the six people who typically see each other in that pew have, have stayed connected and have looked after each other and have checked in. And then the vestry, of course, has um, leads in congregational life in the way that they've been continuing to reach out and make connections with people in the congregation. And each of the, the different ministries, um, those ministry leaders uh, care about the life of the people in that ministry and so have knit them together. Um, the Eucharistic visitors, for example, can't take Eucharist into people's homes or into senior living communities, but they've continued to check on the folks they would be taking communion to. So there is a chance to commune together, whether over the phone or by a note. Um, so being canon for congregational life doesn't mean that it's, you know, you're the, you're the director of the band, but more that um, I try to see the places where there are connections happening and help nurture those. And then alongside the other clergy ask the question, where are the micro communities or connections that um, would benefit from some attention and care. That was part one of my interview with Reverend Jennifer King Doherty. If you'd like to listen to part two, just go to stmarks.org or find us wherever you get your podcasts.